Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay, all things considered. It's a bit of apocalyptic-y feeling here in Oregon right now. Due to the wildfires that are surrounding Portland, the air is more or less unbreathable, and the sky is the wrong color, which is not exactly soothing, but it is visually arresting, in a way that brings to mind some science fiction movies, and that in turn reminds me of cloning. Now I'm not sure where we are with human cloning right now, I mean in terms of scientific advancement. I'm also not sure where we are with cloning in terms of ethical and theological implications, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. Or is it the same kettle of fish that got cloned? No, I'm pretty sure it's different fish. Anyway, I think when we are ready to start human cloning, (laughs) listen to me being naive, start. Anyway, I think that the first person we clone, or the first person that we admit that we're cloning, should be Edward James Almos. And that's for a couple of reasons. A, he is a brilliant actor, philanthropist, and social activist, and Lord knows the world could use more people like him. And two, my suspicion, based on my vast scientific experience, is that clones are probably kind of like pancakes, in that the first one just never comes out quite right. And I figure, if you get like 90% of Edward James Almost, that's pretty goddamn good. And also, you could call him Edward James Almost. So, that's why I think we should start cloning Edward James Almost immediately. My Nobel Prize can be mailed to Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Thank you. Now, that's enough high-minded scientific discourse. Let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. And it's a timely one. This Friday night, let's rock like Mal Duncan. Let's even some odds and get those shofars funkin'. You can say Shana Tova, add Umatuka if you wanna. Or just Happy New Year, cause the old one's a Ghana. If there are Jews on Tamaran, they might say, Sweet Anise. So get out your apples and honey, and hear this synopsis. Thanks, Devin. And Happy New Year. Defenders, number 82. April, 1980. Wizard Death. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inkted by Joe Sinnott. Letterded by John Costanza, colorded by Glynis Oliver, and edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup Doctor Strange, Namor, The Incredible Hulk, Aroika, and Zahooks. Shush? Shusha. Previously in the Defenders. 
Sorcerer Supreme Doctor Stephen Strange learned of the existence of an evil being which he called the Unmentionable One, so I call the Underpants Monster, whose evil scheme posed a critical threat to the entire universe. To combat this cosmic foe, Steve called his old frenemies and fellow members of the original Defenders roster, the Hulk and Namor. But unbeknownst to the rest of the gang, before he received Steve's summons, the Hulk had already been visited by another unusual caller. An extraterrestrial glob of silver goo who worked for the underpants monster swung by Earth, engulfed the Hulk, and implanted its boss's super-secret real name into the Green Goliath's subconscious, turning the bounding behemoth into a sleeper agent for the unutterable enemy. Then the silvery space barba papa erased all memory of the encounter from the Hulk's mind and fucked off back to space. Bye, silvery space barba papa! Unaware of the unwitting double agent in their midst, the trio of OG defenders journeyed to the Underpants Monster's realm, a high fantasy nonsense dimension called Tunnel World. Upon arrival, they were greeted by a mysterious stranger with enormous, goofy-ass six-foot wings growing out of the sides of his head. This difficult-to-buy-hats-for newcomer introduced himself as Eroika, and offered to act as a guide for our heroes. At first, the defenders weren't sure if they could trust this wing-headed wanderer, but to earn their trust, Eroika tricked them into falling asleep and invaded their dreams. Once he had successfully Dennis quaded his way into their collective dreamscapes, the non-normatively noggined nomad proceeded to sing a song which delivered a Silmarillion worth of high-fantasy bullshit backstory and thinly-veiled references to Ayn Rand philosophy directly into their subconsciousness. The upshot of this lyrical firehose of exposition was... <sighs> A long time ago, a vulture-headed jerkhole employee of the Underpants Monster named Yitit Nidian created Eroika's race of wingheads so that he and his bird-headed buddies could exploit their labor, torture them, and generally abuse them. He also gave them enormous non-functional wings on the sides of their heads, basically as a prank. Yitit Nidian forced the wingheads to build him a huge fortress named Ogion and forbid them from ever speaking, but the wingheads befriended a race of invisible fairies of the intellect named Naya, who taught them how to Freddy Krueger their way into each other's dreams where they could sing stories at their pals. The Naya also told them about a prophecy which foretold that one day a winghead would free himself from Ogion and help lead to the downfall of the underpants monster. A little while ago, Eroika managed to bust out of Ogion. He figured that meant he was probably the dude from the prophecy, so he sought out the defenders and offered to lend them a hand. Whew. Once Eroika finished dream singing at them, the gang figured they could probably trust him. Together, the four heroes snuck into the citadel of Ogion. Once inside, the curious quartet was greeted by a disheartening sight. Former defenders' ally and Tunnel World native, Shusha, had been kidnapped by Yitit Nedian's forces and was being paraded through the city streets. Shusha was the big furry pile of limbs and eyeballs who had helped the defenders defeat Lunatic with a K an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago. He was also a super powerful wizard, so if the birdheads had defeated him, that wasn't a great sign. When the Hulk saw his buddy Shush being paraded through the streets in a cage, he flipped out and started attacking Yitit Nedian's soldiers. Namor, Steve, and Eroika joined in. When the other wingheads saw Eroika taking up arms against their bird-beaked oppressors, they all decided it must be prophecy time, and leapt into the fray to aid their non-aerodynamic amigo in his insurrection. Hooray! Or is it hooray? Because from within his tower which loomed over the skyline of Ogion, Yatitnedian gloated that everything was going according to his evil plan. He deployed a giant tank called the Crusher to crush his enemies. Hulk strode out confidently to confront the super tank, but before the weapon fired a shot, Yutitnedian accessed the word the silvery space Barba Papa had implanted in the Emerald Avenger's brain, and the Jade Giant collapsed, immediately rendered unconscious. Namor stepped in and smashed the shit out of the super tank, but when the rubble cleared, it was too late. 
both the Hulk and Shusha had been chained up and taken to Yititnetian's inner sanctum. As Steve and Namor pondered their next step, Eroika continued to sow the seeds of revolution amongst his fellow wingheads. Gadzooks! What hideous fate does Yititnetian have in store for the Hulk? Will Shusha survive his imprisonment in Ogeon? And given that he has already proven himself to be a murderous, potentially genocidal, sadistic madman, is there anything Yititnetian can do to further lower my opinion of him? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... He makes him wear pants. No. And... Yeah. He's rude to waiters. With an unconscious the Hulk chained up in the corner, Yititnetian gloats to Shusha that the good guys are totally hosed. Using his unique speech pattern, which has a fucked up syntax that's kinda reminiscent of Yoda's but less consistent and is also punctuated randomly with the word Aru, Shusha is like, If totally under command your he is, why Hulk chained up needs to be Aru. Yititnetian is like, Holy shit is your mode of speech annoying. I think you're wondering why I bothered chaining up the Hulk seeing as he's in my thrall, right? Well, that's a fair question, and the answer is because I felt like it. Here's the thing. I'm like totally one billion percent evil, so sometimes I do fucked up things just because. For example, you know that revolution the wingheads are plotting? Well, I'm secretly encouraging them to do that just so that I can get their hopes up before I squish them. Oh, and in case you were wondering whether I meant squish their hopes or squish the actual wingheads, the answer is yes. Pretty evil, huh? If he were paying attention, Shush would probably be forced to admit that his foe's particular brand of nonsensical behavior was indeed pretty darn evil. But the extra-eyeballed enchanter had other things on his mind. Apparently the captured conjurer managed to sneak a couple of those invisible brain goblins, the Naya, into Yititnetian's fortress with him. While his bird-faced warden was yammering on and on about what a jerk hole he was, the six-limbed sorcerer was telling his invisible buddies to zoom around inside the Hulk's brain and see if they could angry him up a little bit. Turns out, they could. Which is hardly a surprise, because getting the Hulk angry is about as difficult as getting Doctor Strange to be smug, but still. Hooray! A groggy the Hulk awakes to find himself chained up and harassed by unseen annoyances. He starts indiscriminately smashing things and just generally making a mess of Yititnetian's room. To the buzzard-faced Blackguard's credit, it only takes him a minute or two to figure out what's happening. He rolls up on Shusha's cage and starts blasting his physiologically perplexing prisoner in the face with blasts of evil magic, and warning the invisible Naya that if they don't stop buzzing the Hulk's control tower, they'll have a dead wizard on their conscience. The Naya heed Yititnetian's warning. As soon as the invisible mental fairies knock it off with their brain barnstorming, the Hulk goes from being a rampaging menace to an unsettlingly pliant pawn of the squawking sorceress Svengali. Yititnetian tells Shusha that if he tries any shit like that again, he'd better start shopping for factory irregular coffins, because he's going to be murdered as fuck. Then he tells the Hulk to get ready, because he has a job for him. The Hulk is distressingly obedient. While the Hulk receives his marching orders from his black-hearted, beaked boss, Steve and Namor confer with Eroika and his band of wing-headed revolutionaries. Eroika appeals to Steve to aid them in their uprising against Yatitnetian. Steve is like, I don't know, Eroika. I mean, I'd just love for you and your opinion-pated pals to have your freedom, 
And this buzzard-headed fellow did take the Hulk prisoner and also imprisoned our friend Shush and took all of his magic stuff. And he is in league with our sworn enemy, the Underpants Monster, but we're pretty busy. Before Namor gets the chance to throttle the prevaricating prestidigitator, a distressed winghead rushes into the room and informs the council that Yititnedian has deployed a cadre of soldiers and super tanks that has breached their perimeter, and unless swift action is taken, they will all be destroyed. Then, as if to illustrate his point, he is shot in the back and dies. Steve is like, Fine, I suppose I'll fight in your little revolution, but I'm still not crazy about this. Namor and Steve lead the rebel forces into combat. The battle is swift and decisive, with the defenders taking out the super tanks, while Eroika and the rest of the wing-headed warriors mop up the rest of the ground troops. Hooray! The rebels are exuberant, but Namor warns them against overconfidence. The abdominally adroit Atlantean is like, I feel as though our avian-faced enemy is trying to lure us into a trap. Who does he think we are? Teen Titans? As our heroes plot their strategy, Back in the enemy stronghold, the elite giant lizard bird riding air force is meeting their new commander. Their new, big, green commander. That's right, all decked out in a fancy Ogianian military uniform is the Hulk. He inspects his troops. Huh. Interesting choice, Yatitnedian. The Hulk is good at jumping around, randomly smashing things, and being alone, so. Once you got him on your side, you decided his abilities could best be put to use by riding a giant bird and making command decisions as the head of your armed forces. What, there weren't any openings in your chartered accountancy department? The Hulk marches around in his snazzy outfit and tells his new subordinates that pretty soon he's going to lead them into battle and they are going to crush the Freedom Fighters because that's what his new best pal Buzzard Face wants him to do. Jeez, the Hulk. I know you're mind-controlled or whatever, but I would have thought that your years of association with Kyle would teach you that no good will ever come from listening to somebody with a beak. Except maybe Topo the Octopus. He seems chill. In a different part of the stronghold, Yititnedian is hard at work trying to destroy the Orb of Omenin. When his soldiers captured Shush, they ganked all his magic stuff, and foremost amongst these mystical possessions is the Orb. The vulture-headed villain intends to obliterate the sphere and ensure that its power can never be used against him or his underpants overlord. The problem is, the Orb proves to have a couple of things in common with my habit of using the word less when I mean fewer in that it is very hard to break and super annoying to at least one person. Yatitnidian casts an array of destructive spells on the stubborn sphere, but none seem to have any effect. With mounting rage, the raptor-resembling reprobate redoubles his effort, but to no avail. A little lizard guy wearing a diaper and a powdered wig figures that all that magicking looks like mighty thirsty work and tries to bring old buzzard breath something to drink. Big mistake. Yititnedian decides to focus all of the frustration on the beverage bearer. He kicks the little lizard guy in the tummy and throws the goblet he was carrying in disgust. Much to the waitstaff abusing Jerkhole's surprise, the offending chalice hurtles into the orb of Omenin and shatters the mystical relic into thousands of pieces. Dang! Turns out the orb was protected against magical assaults, but not physical ones. 
I'd like to think this fortuitous turn of events would be reflected in the tip Birdbeak leaves for his server, but somehow, I doubt it. While Yitit Nedian celebrates his good fortune, Namor, Steve, and an elite force of wing-headed warriors sneak into the sewers beneath the fortress. Were they inspired by the video box cover to the movie Ghoulies and plan on surprising the bird-faced baddie by sneaking up through his toilet when he least suspects it? Well, no. But Namor does swim up through some pretty gross sewage. Thankfully, he doesn't dress like a zombified version of a Cabbage Patch Kid when he does it. Man, that video box cover freaked me out. While the rest of his party takes a rest, Namor hears a noise and swims through a pipe of fetid waste to investigate. He finds a creature that looks a lot like the unfortunate server who tried to bring Yitit Neti in a drink, rowing through the sewer tunnels in a little canoe. It may actually be the same disgruntled drink bearer, because whoever he is, he seems to bear a pretty serious grudge against his employer, and although he cannot communicate verbally with the avenging scion of Atlantis, he nevertheless makes it clear that he is eager to guide enemy forces into Yitit Nedian's dungeon and help free the prisoners. And that, dear listeners, is why you always tip your bartender. Led by the angry little lizard man, Namor and the Wingheads bust into Ogion's underground prison. They find that it is overflowing with horribly tortured inmates, many of whom are on death's door. It seems that in addition to his general sadistic proclivities, Yititnedian derives his mystical power from the pain and anguish of his victims. Shitty. The rebels free as many prisoners as they can, but one poor soul appears to be beyond help. Eroika aids the hapless creature in the only way available to him, by granting them a swift and merciful death. Damn. While Namor and Eroika are experiencing this harrowing ordeal, Steve is taking a little snooze. Fucking Steve. Okay, to be fair, while he's snoozing, he's also astrally projecting and sending his ghostly apparition out to search for the Hulk and Shoosh, but still, on general principle. Fucking Steve. While Ghost Steve is poking around, he's dismayed to see the shattered remains of the Orb of Omenon. He's probably bummed, because that's like the one source of a mystical internet connection in all of Tunnel World. Now we'll have to wait until he gets back to the Sanctum to find out what those nasty little flame ghosts are up to. Reluctantly, Steve continues his search. Before long, he stumbles across Shush's cage. The many-eyeballed mage has no difficulty seeing Ghost Steve, and greets his colleague. He's like, Aru, Steve, hi. Late for me too, is it? But... Key to Birdface defeating the orb holds still. Aroo! Not only in syntax fucked up speak do I, but also cryptic unnecessarily my dialogue is. Steve is like, So, if I've got that right, I should leave you to die at the hands of your cruel tormentor, but go try to boot up the orb and jack into the mystical knowledge superhighway? Something like that? Okie dokie, you're the boss, Shush. Bye! Shush is about to yell, My browser history erased, you must! Aroo! at Spectral Steve. But before he gets the chance, Yatitnetian shows up and starts flinging bolts of evil at the Astral Archmage. Ghost Steve books it out of there, but Yatitnetian is in hot pursuit. Or at least he is until Shusha sicks his invisible brain goblin buddies the Naya on the buzzard-beaked bad guy and tells them to give him a wedgie and tug his cape over his head. Zing! Thanks to the Naya's interference, Ghost Steve manages to escape. 
Shusha is probably seeing two Yatitnetians for a second, because the avian attributed archfiend is beside himself with rage. Remember how he told Shush at the beginning of the story that if he pulled another stunt with Anaya, it was going to be murder o'clock? Well, Yatitnetian remembers, and without hesitation, he murders the shit out of Shush. Damn. I guess that'd be the wizard death to which the title was referring. As Shusha dies, his little Naya buddies drop dead as well, because they're just too bummed out to keep living. Ghost Steve tries to sneak past the Ogion Air Force on his way back to check on the orb debris. He figures that his astral form will be invisible to the lizard birds and their riders, but he figures wrong. Yatitnetian hooked them all up with some sort of Steve-spotting spell, so, led by their new big green commander, they all hop on their lizard birds and start chasing Ghost Steve all around Ogion airspace. Astral Steve manages to elude most of the lizard bird riders, but Commander the Hulk is hot on his intangible heels. In desperation, Steve makes a dash towards the broken shards of the Orb of Omenon. As he approaches it, he notices an inscription etched into the remains of the Orb's metal stand. He flies through the frame of the stand, and, acting on a hunch, as the Hulk and his winged mount attempt to follow him, Steve turns and recites the incantation that he has just read. As he does so, the orb magically reforms over the Hulk and his bird, trapping them both inside. Hooray! As Steve breathes a sigh of relief, Yatitnetian stealthily sneaks up on the smug sorcerer as he admires his handiwork. But before Beakface gets a chance to shank Steve with some sort of magical bird shiv, Namor, the escaped prisoners, and the wing-headed freedom fighters burst into the room. A random winghead rolls up on Yatitnetian, and Sucker punches him in the side of the face with the flat of a sword. Yatitnetian is down for the count. Oh, well, that was a little anticlimactic. But still. Hooray! To be continued. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. All right. One okay, one all right. Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah, I went down a weird rabbit hole the other day of rereading really shitty old comic books from the 90s, and it was pretty fun. Have you ever heard of a character called the Ferret? Oh no. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think I have. He is a terrible, very overt Wolverine knockoff that was I started to say popular, but he was never popular. Hmm. But he came out in the nineties. I think he was maybe a revamp of a Golden Age character who had like one appearance and had that name. But uh wow, he's really something. It sounds like Wolverine just sounds so much more badass. But I guess they're like all kind of in the weasel family, right? Uh, I think they are all muscalids, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's kind of a hierarchy within that that Wolverines definitely sit at the top of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also like the comic book character The Badger, who I wouldn't characterize as a Wolverine knockoff, but is a little bit more intimidating and more closely related to the Wolverine. Mm -hmm. But 
Yeah, that would be kind of a fun superhero team to put together. The Badger, the Wolverine, and the Ferret. I mean, they're all owned by different publishers, but it's only a matter of time before Disney owns everything. So, uh, yeah, just uh, have a superhero team called the Muscolids. Yeah, I mean, if Monopolies give us nothing else, at least we got a team of Muscolids. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like those three and probably Pepe Le Pew. Oh, yeah, I guess the skunk's part of that. I mean, that is why the Wolverine is called the Stink Bear, which I think is a pretty badass nickname. How did I not know that? I don't know, Corey. Oh, man. You maybe haven't been watching the same nature documentaries that I have. Okay, well, after this show, you <laughs> we're going to take some notes. I'm going to get a list of required watching material. What have you been up to? Oh, this and that. Mostly work. Boo! I'm sorry, there was a ghost in here. Ooh, scary. Yeah, it's a ghost who disapproves of work. It's difficult because sometimes I think he's trying to scare me, but I'm just trying to write something. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you've been able to deal with that. Thank you. You want to talk about a comic book? Sure, let's uh, jump on in. Corey, what did you think of this issue... Wizard death. Yeah, I was actually, that was what I was going to lead with also. Kind of an interesting title. You know, I felt like it, it moved along pretty well. It definitely kept me engaged. And it's nice to see another baby step being taken towards finding out who the unnameable is. Yeah, I feel like we are maybe getting close to the big reveal of the underpants monster. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, maybe I'm just Stockholming here, but I kind of enjoyed this issue. Yeah, no, same boat. Like, I got done with it, and I thought to myself, I think this is getting better. <laughs> yeah, I think part of that has to do with there is a new art team on the book. It is now penciled by Don Perlin and inked by Joe Sinnott, who... I am a big fan of both of those people. What did you think of the art? Yeah, I noticed that also. I thought the art was really good. I was curious. I Maybe they had been described this way before and I missed it, but they had Don Perlin credited with layout and, and Senate with finishes, which I thought had a nice kind of craftsperson feel. Yeah, I'm not sure if that represents necessarily a different breakdown between the pencils and inks. You will see it credited that way sometimes. It, to me, makes it seem like maybe it's looser pencils and more of the work is being done with the inks, but it might just be that they switch up the credits from time to time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was good. The characters were pretty consistently drawn. Art was crisp. And the style of that first page where they, they lay things out with this kind of gosh, almost like an Art Nouveau kind of filigree around the edge, was super cool. Yeah, I totally agree, and I felt like it took a big step towards immersing us in the world of fantasy that the book takes place in, in a few different ways. I think the art has kind of just a different energy, just bringing in the new art team, and I want to make clear, I really do like Herb Trimpey's art, but I'm glad to hear you say that you like Don Perlin's work, 
because he is going to be the consistent penciler on the Defenders for the next 70 or so issues. Oh, my. Yeah. We have a steep hill to climb. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. But, you know, when you're you're climbing a hill, you start at the bottom. So... (laughs) Yep. It's not a complaint. It's 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 a fun hill to climb. It's just a lot. Yeah. And Joe Sinnott is maybe my favorite inker. If not, he's definitely up there. He did a lot of the inks on Jack Kirby's early stuff. Not like super early, not his Golden Age stuff, but on like the Fantastic Four and did a really tremendous job with that. And I think does a tremendous job in this issue as well. Part of what works for me about this issue more is I said it had a different energy. It seems like maybe the art team is a little bit more invested in it and it's less rushed because you get more background details, which is especially helpful if you are trying to immerse the reader in a different world that they're not familiar with. And there were a bunch of little background touches that I don't think that we've been getting before that really help with that. I definitely noticed a lot more, I guess, richness in the backgrounds with kind of the, I guess, the extras, if you will, especially all these strange little um, critters and, and creatures lending to this feel of Yatinidian's menagerie of tortured <laughs> souls. Yeah, that was definitely a big part of it that I think was really good and kind of helped you get more invested in the comic in a way that I haven't been able to in previous ones. Another thing that I think made a pretty good difference is that this whole issue takes place in Tunnel World. We don't cut back to see what the rest of the Defenders are up to, which, on the one hand, I miss the other Defenders and I want the presence of Hellcat and Valkyrie, but it doesn't take you out of the story in the same way that I think it had been previously when it would just flip back to them for a page or two in the issue. And yeah, I feel weird saying this because I don't think it's necessarily better written, but it was a much more enjoyable and immersive read. So uh, good job. Yeah, same here. Really did miss Kyle, though. You did not, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually the subject of one of my favorite things in the letters column. Did you read the letter column in this? Oh, gosh. No, I didn't. One letter was, For the first time, as far as I can remember in the history of Marvel Comics, there's a legit all-female supergroup. Not Valkyrie's Women's Libbers, which is a reference to some issues that I covered with Sarah Sentry a few episodes ago. Not these Fantastic Fourers, uh, i.e. Sue Richards, Tigra, and Thundra who can't get along well enough to last even an entire issue. Personally, I love this arrangement. No Hulk and no, and then in parentheses, there's the word no twice more with exclamation points, Nighthawk. <laughs> that was by Andy Stoison. Uh, and the letter after that is somebody saying, Dear editors, how could you? Omega was one of my favorite heroes. Uh, it's talking about the Omega the Unknown issues that we cover. But it ends the letter with, I beg you, bring him back somehow. He would make a great defender or an occasional guest star. Bring back Omega. And the editor's response is just the word, no, period. Whoa. Yeah, they were feeling salty in this one. There's another thing where people are complaining about the Omega the Unknown storyline. And they're like, well, look, we're not Steve Gerber. We like his stuff too, but he doesn't work for us anymore. And he's not coming back. So. Yep. 
Dang. Yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it definitely did give the impression of making a fart noise while flipping the reader off, which I gotta say, I appreciated. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see you <laughs> appreciating that. That's kind of your one of your schools of criticism. Fair enough. You talked a little bit about some of the background hench creatures in this, and that was maybe one of my favorite parts of the issue. Uh, you get really interesting character design on some of these guys, and you also get some different character dynamics going on with them. You actually get some like dialogue between a couple of the hench people that create kind of a, a through line for parts of the issue where they're just goofuses. And I like seeing like lower level hench people portrayed as not necessarily faceless menacing evils, but as like, eh, well, time to punch the clock. Sucks working for this evil guy, huh? Yeah, but what can you do? I enjoyed that aspect of it, which you get with a couple of characters, one of whom reminded me of Merlin from the Sword in the Stone cartoon, and the other one looked like Charles Durning, kind of, only a lizard. And those guys were really fun, and I appreciated their dynamic. And there were a bunch of other just, like, weird character designs on a bunch of little critters that are Yatit Nedian's subjects. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that kind of working person's banter among the guards. The goofiest of the goofuses, though, I gotta say is, and I may be butchering his name, Gathut Gaour, the dual-nosed goofball who is like the birdmaster. Oh, see, I didn't see that as dual-nosed. I thought that he had a prehensile tentacle mustache. But yeah, no, he was a goofus too, like trying to give the Hulk like, all right, welcome to the job, buddy. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was like... um kind of miniature elephant trunks, just two of them. Yeah, I can see that. Which, in a way, is a prehensile mustache. That's not it's not inaccurate in that <laughs> there's probably some hair on it. Yeah, I would imagine so. Either way, yes, it is a very goofy look. You get those guys. On the first page of the comic, you have this layout that is so bizarre and there's so much going on. You talked about the filigree of the lettering that looks super kind of fantasy slash metal writing that is really cool looking and I think does bring you into like, nope, we're going all in on high fantasy in this issue. The rest of what's going on in that panel, it's like a combination of a Hieronymus Bosch painting and one of those, like, political cartoons you see from the 1800s. <laughs> where it's, like, both way too on the nose and totally inscrutable as to what's going on. Yeah. You get this weird lizardy dude wearing a powdered wig and a diaper that's crouched on top of this cross that the Hulk is chained to. And then to his left, you see this creature i guess that's like a centipede that's made out of muscly arms it's just really really weird looking my guess is he's probably supposed to represent tariffs or something <laughs> that's the t-tax uh-huh yeah can we stay on the 10 armed thing for a second i just like looked at that for a while <laughs> thinking like how does it function like what is it's it is bizarre yeah, I went back and forth. I was like, is that a creature? Or are those like very specific trophies that 
Yitit Nedian keeps around? Or are those, we see that there's another one of the robot guards in this picture, but it looks like he's full robot, not robot with muscly arms. Are those replacement parts for the robot guards? Like, there's so many different things that could be going on with that just big mass of arms that makes a centipede creature. Yep. And I gotta say, I really like that, and I really like being given something like that to think about. It's kind of starting the issue with like, all right, guys, this is gonna get weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Also, aren't you sick of the wig party? <laughs> Down with tariffs. <laughs> Fucking Millard Fillmore. Uh, 13th and <laughs> lousiest president. Well, <laughs> I guess that's debatable. It's now a horse race, I would say. <laughs> but yeah, there's a whole bunch of background characters in this. I mentioned that there was the one guard who looked like a lizard version of Charles Durning. There's also a couple of the wingheads in this, one of whom looks like a bearded Lee Marvin, but with six foot wings growing out of his head. The other one looks kind of <laughs> like Julie Christie. And it's like, whoa, you put some thought into what these dudes look like. Nice job. Yeah, the Lee Marvin guy was... I was like, man, I didn't even know these dudes could grow beards. And then I kind of went down the rabbit hole of like, what is their grooming routine like with those... <laughs> Because, like, you know, sometimes your ear itches and, you know, maybe you use a Q-tip, but you're not supposed to, really. Yeah. And these guys have ears that are, what, like the length of their entire bodies, essentially? Mm -hmm. They must use Q-tips the size of those things that the American gladiators used to hit each other with. <laughs> and they're probably not supposed to put those in their ears, either. Like, if you listen to the manufacturer of the giant Q-tip, they're like, no, this is for applying ointment to your elbow technically I'm like come on q-tip you know i'm sticking this shit in my ear yeah well here's the thing they have humanoid sized ears it's just mm -hmm. the the wings are like uh extra on them yeah but i mean they are placed like right behind their ears like they're so ear adjacent that it seems like it would affect their hearing for the positive mm -hmm. but then it doesn't seem to because we see that like namor has way better hearing than aroika which really underlines what a dickhole yitit nedian is like not only does he give them giant six foot wings that are ears that make them want to fly but they can't fly but also they don't have very good hearing either oh yeah it's a lose lose yeah and the wing, they cover the whole back side of the ear, so maybe they hear well from, like, straight on, frontwards. But I'm pretty oh. sure these guys are really easy to sneak up on and surprise. I bet they do that to each other all the time. They have no peripheral hearing. You're totally right. Yep. Oh. It, and let's maybe stay on the topic of what a jerk Yatinidian is. He kicks... One of his uh, people that's just trying to bring him a cool beverage. I know. No, there are a number of ways in which he demonstrates that he is a total piece of shit. For one thing, yes, absolutely. A lizard dude who isn't wearing a powdered wig, but looks like maybe he had been wearing one because he's got like his head bandaged up. Uh, so maybe he makes them wear powdered wigs that are super itchy. Ugh. 
Yeah, fuck that guy. Horrible. But yeah, that guy comes in, tries to give him a drink. He grabs the drink away from him and says, bring me a drink, will you? And kicks him in the stomach, then throws the drink through the orb of nonsense, and it shatters the orb, and he's like, aha, I almost missed that this was the thing. It's like, dude, you did miss it. Like, this is happenstance. You're taking credit for a discovery that you didn't make, too. Another way you tit... Okay, I'm tired of calling him Yatitnetian. It's too awkward, and I keep wanting to call him Titty as a nickname, but that's we've discussed that's probably not a good idea. Can we call him Ned? Ned? Yeah. Oh, Nedian? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was abbreviating it like capital Y, small T I T in my notes, but that doesn't really roll off the tongue. No, and also with Yatit, you get the same problem as Titty. <laughs> you really do. Yatit? <laughs> uh so, yeah, we also see that Ned just paints evil-looking eyeballs on a bunch of his shit, which I think creates the illusion of surveillance, but is just unsettling to everybody. We see that one of the dungeons, like the block at the base of something, just has some evil-looking eyeballs painted on it, which I think is a decent touch if you want to create a state of unease in people, but also is a pretty decent sign that you're just an asshole. And you also get, perhaps most damning of all, the fact that for his upper echelon of workers, he doesn't promote from within. Mm. You always want to promote from within. You're looking for a new captain of your guard, and you bring in an outsider like the Hulk who yesterday tried to kill a whole bunch of your workers? They're not going to respect him. It's going to cause friction amongst the ranks. You get guys like Lizard Charles Durning, who's been passed over for promotion so many times that he just doesn't give a shit about his job anymore. Like, it's not just evil. It's also just bad business practice. I feel like this is not the first time this has come up on the show that you should promote from within. It's possible. I know it didn't come up in the last episode when we talked about Valkyrie being made captain of the Mandrills Guard, but I feel like it should have then too. It seems like kind of a go-to move for a lot of evil people. Mm -hmm. First of all, yeah, not promoting from within because they don't want to, you know, pay more. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I don't know, just being lazy. Yeah, it's lazy. It's also just going to have a demoralizing effect on your entire work staff, which maybe is what he's going for. Man. Bad management. So I gotta say, just fuck Ned. Mm -hmm. One other nice little touch is that they do lend to this feel of strangeness, I guess, by having a lot of the little creatures, um, especially like the powdered wig diaper wearing guys, mm -hmm. speaking um, a different language, which they kind of fill in with this sort of loopy, loopy, not like bonkers, but loopy, like made of loops. Mm -hmm. and, and don't translate it for us, which I, I thought that was kind of cool. I agree. It's weird, though, because it's only some of the creatures that it's done for. So I think it has a kind of dehumanizing effect on those creatures or, or maybe others them in a way that it doesn't the more humanoid creatures. But really, all of those guys would be speaking a non-English language, right? One would think. But yeah, no, I agree. It It is a nice touch and it does lend to the alienness of 
the whole environment and the world that we're thrown into here. Also, speaking of Ned being a total douche, he murders Shusha. That is the titular death of a wizard that we get in this issue. Kind of a bummer. It's a total bummer. Like, I was getting sick of reading his weird dialogue, too, but I didn't want him to get lasered to death. No, I mean, it is a relief to not have to read his weird syntax, but he had a pretty good showing in this issue, both in terms of his performance and when we are shown him. It's interesting depictions of him, like the three or four times we see him. It's more or less static shots of him in a cage, a fairly small cage at that, but he's drawn as... I think more so than before, just a weird word jumble of eyeballs that are super expressive. Like, he has the same look in all of his, like, eight eyeballs that are just scattered haphazardly around his face, or sometimes lined up in formation. But, like, you see them looking sneaky all at the same time, (laughs) which, I mean, does totally defeat the purpose. You can overlook someone having a shifty look in their eye, but it's a lot harder to overlook someone having a shifty look in, like, 20 eyes. Mm -hmm. But you also see him looking sad and surprised, and, like, the level of expressiveness that you get in this just pile of eyeballs is really, really fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to miss seeing that. Yeah, same here. And I think it does also speak to the prowess of the new art team, right? When you're handed something like this, on one hand, you can be like, oh, God. And on the other hand, you could be like, oh, this is an opportunity to really, you know, take something that's been done previously Mm -hmm. and see what I can do to make it even better. Yeah, and I think they did a great job with that. And the little details, like you were saying, like that was actually a pretty sad scene when he gets zapped to death by Ned and... One of the things we notice in, you know, his three arms are flailing out and kind of convulsing and he's getting lasered and his little cap gets knocked off onto the floor. I know. It honestly made me wonder if that was what put him over the edge. If like it was a Frosty the Snowman type situation. (laughs) There must have been some magic in that hat that he swiped from the mouse from Dumbo. Because uh, when they put it on his head, he began to dance around and say a in fucked up syntax. Just like Frosty the Snowman. Exactly. Hmm. Also, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but you see he had like the trick that he did where the orb was destroyed, but it could be reassembled if an incantation on the base was read. Mm -hmm. And he hinted at that to Steve, which, I mean, honestly, you could have just come out and said it. Right. I don't understand why everybody in these books needs to speak in riddles, other than I guess it helps with the pacing, maybe. But he tells him, like, oh, go do this. The orb still has something going for it. And Steve notices that there's an incantation written on the base. And he reads it aloud. And then after he says it's like, The meter was strange, but I was able to make the translation correctly. Praise the Vishanti. I don't generally empathize with Steve, but in this situation, having read a lot of the reader submissions of synopsis rhymes, 
<laughs> I can totally get the like, I don't know what meter this is supposed to be in, so I'm gonna do my best. Mm -hmm. So I feel for you in that regard, Steve, especially because you would have to imagine if it was written to be read by Shusha, the meter is gonna be really weird. So. Nice job, Steve. Also, I tried to read that poem and I was having the same problem that I sometimes do with trying to find the meter because I don't know if that was like the meter was strange was supposed to be a nod to the fact that Shusha talks weird or if it was just like, oh, I kind of fucked that poem up or the incantation, which I mean, what is an incantation but a poem? Mm, I mean, deep. Doesn't a poem really cast a spell on our hearts? <laughs> anyway, in regions of light, in regions of dark, in regions where Naya do swarm, in Omenin's words against the unspoken, what evil has marked, what evil has broken, let the shards now reform. I couldn't quite get the catch of the meter there. Like, it started off in a very clear direction, and then I was like, oh, uh, wait, what? So I wasn't sure if that was Hannigan just being like, uh, I don't want to figure out the right meter on this, so I'll just lampshade it by Steve saying it was off, or if he intentionally wrote it in kind of wonky meter as a nod to Shusha. But either way, it ended up kind of working. So do you think if you get the meter, like, really wrong, the spell kind of goes sideways or just doesn't work? Yeah, it's like Guitar Hero in that way. Oh... How would that spell have gone wrong? It's supposed to reform the orb. I don't know, maybe it would have made it into a cube? I mean, Hulk would be able to bust out of that thing no problem. Mm -hmm. It's only the constant atmospheric pressure of that weird snow globe that's keeping him bound in there, I would imagine. Yeah, well, maybe one thing that, because his meter was slightly off, that didn't go to plan was that the bird's feet are stuck outside. Yeah, the feet and the tips of the wings are protruding from the orb in a way that I was like, wait, is he supposed to be all the way in there? Maybe it's just highlighting that it's not a physical sphere, but like a energy sphere. But yeah, it was kind of weird. No, I think it is pretty physical because if you look in the last, very last panel at the expression on the bird's face, I mean, he is literally spread eagled and he is <laughs> not liking it. <laughs> no, he is not. <laughs> Looks like a really uncomfortable stretch. Yeah. Ah, sucks to be that bird. Birds get some rough treatment in this book, I gotta say. Starting on the cover, uh, which incidentally, the cover is absolutely gorgeous. It is by Rich Buckler, and it's Steve and the Hulk having a big old fight. Well, the Hulk is riding a bird, and Steve is blasting him with two different kinds of mystical bolts, one from each hand. It is incredibly cool looking, and the detail on it is really great. The inks on that are by Al Milgram. But at first glance, it kind of looks like the Hulk is getting Randy Johnsoned at the back of the bird. <laughs> like, there's an explosion it looks like, I think it's just supposed to be of, like, energy and dynamism behind the Hulk. But from that and the expression on the bird's face and the fact that you can't see much of his middle, I was just like, oh, shit, somebody launched the fuck out of the Hulk at that bird. And that is an ex-bird now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was only seconds later he evaporated in a red mist. Yep. But the main bird that uh, has a rough go of it by the end of the issue is uh, Ned himself. Because mm-hmm. we see that Arrowika just sneaks up behind him and bonks him on the side of the face with a spear. Did you get the impression that that was the flat of his spear? Is he dead or not, do you think? I got the impression that it was the flat edge of a of a sword and that it just knocked him out. Hmm. Yeah, I just don't think that we've really seen Arrowika carrying a sword before, and he's generally using a spear or maybe a halberd. But you're right. Honestly, it looks like it's just one of the flunky wing heads that has a spear in that page. So is it not even Arrowika that makes the KO on Ned? I don't think it is, because the guy that knocks him out is a wing-headed man who is bald. Yeah. And Arrowika has that kind of mohawk. Yeah, he has that weird little uh, DQ twist of hair on top of his head. Dairy Queen? Yeah. Oh. You know, like when you get the soft-serve twirl. Oh, sure. Wow, that makes the KOing of Yitit Nedian even more anticlimactic. Knocked out by a flunky. Yeah, I think maybe I like that it's a little bit anticlimactic, but there's been this big build-up to this huge wizard battle and how powerful this dude is, and then he just gets bonked on the side of the head by somebody from off-panel. Thunk. Well, he should have thunk twice before trying to fuck with the defenders, I guess. I guess so. But did that end up feeling kind of anticlimactic to you as well? Uh... I suppose, but the fact that I was wanting him to get some form of comeuppance for so long, it was Mm -hmm. still extremely satisfying, especially because the scene in which he's struck, his beak is open really wide and his little bird tongue is doing this weird, like, curling thing. And it just, it looks like it really smarts. And he's going, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) when he gets hit. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Which I guess if you're a giant uh, bipedal (laughs) buzzard man, that's the noise you make when you get sword slapped. I guess so. And you know what? I'd almost say he deserves it. (laughs) Yep. It's a bummer to see the death of Shush, man. And the fact that a couple of Naya dropped alongside him just because they were so sad. They died of being sad because Shush was dead. Which really does underline what a rad dude he was, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also how shitty Ned is. Mm-hmm. Although he did say, if you use those Naya on me again, I'm going to kill you. And then he used the Naya on him again, and he did kill him. I guess that's not really a mitigating factor. It does remind me very much of when <laughs> my friend Kimmy was playing in a band, and she told the sound guy that she oh. was going to punch him in the face as soon as she got off stage. And then as soon as she got off stage, she punched him in the face and was honestly incredulous that she was in trouble for doing so because I told him I was going to. That was such an uncomfortable scene. I I was there for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess it shows us that Ned is a bird of his word. Well, I guess there's a first for everything. (laughs) Well, on that note of bird defamation, uh, you ready to move on to the minutiae? I am. 
All right, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Let's talk about Asaka. Okay. In every issue of a Defenders comic, there is one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Yeah, I know I say this often, but choosing the sucker in this issue was particularly challenging for me. Nothing really jumped out at me, so it's a little bit of a stretch, but I went with Namor for, you know, realizing he just had to do it and jumping into the sewer, because that really didn't seem like something he would normally do. Yeah. It was gross. It was indeed. Yeah, I also had Namor as my sucka. Just for his general vibe in this issue, he's normally literally level-headed, but not metaphorically <laughs> level-headed. And in this issue, he really, like, he showed a lot of deference. He was willing to engage in subterfuge when... Things that happened that would normally piss him off and cause him to fly into a rage, he was able to be like, well, that's not really pragmatic to do right now. And I realize there have been a lot of different interpretations of Namor over the years just because he's a very old character, but I still feel one of the core values that he has is flying into an arrogant rage, and he doesn't do anything that even approximates that in this issue. That is true, yeah. He is He is unusually... Metaphorically level-headed. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were most worthy of note? Well, we can't talk about fashion in this issue without talking about Sir Hulk. <laughs> Man! On page 11. It is weird to see him all fancied up in a military outfit. Yep, all dolled up for battle. I gotta say, it's not a bad look for him. It is so odd to see him in full pants, though. Like, I keep expecting them to just start ripping, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Yep, well, it's, uh, it's uh, spandex or whatever the Tunnel World equivalent is. Yeah, probably unstable molecules. Probably. But yeah, he's got these weird, like, chainmail half gauntlets that don't quite reach his hand. He has that weird hat that the bird riding dudes all wear that looks kind of like a crown. He's got a big purple cape and some really like soft looking but kind of floppy looking purple boots, blue pants and this weird like shoulder badge that is has like a wallet chain that connects to his belt in three different places. I gotta say, it's weird seeing him dolled up like that, but it's a good look for the Hulk, I think. It's interesting to note as well, they left the the collar from when he was imprisoned on that cross. It looks like a nut, like a nut that goes with a bolt, like mm -hmm. an octagonal giant metal thing that takes up his whole neck space. Yeah, I think that's probably Ned's idea, that it's just like, I want to make sure that all of my outfits for my underlings have at least a hint of subjugation. Mm -hmm. Other outfits we have in this issue. On the opening page, we have seen a few different slight variations on Ned's robes before, but the one that he is wearing in this issue 
has a big golden image of a bird on the chest. And I think it's a pretty good look in general, but it's kind of weird because he's a bird. So in case you didn't know, he's not to be trusted. He's (laughs) wearing a giant bird. Right. Well, honestly, the fact that he is a bird who is wearing a picture of a bird on his chest made me wonder if that was a specific bird. Is that like a celebrity bird that he is a fan of? Because like, I've got a Danny Trejo t-shirt and we're both human men from Earth. So like, is that like... Is it an ironic bird robe that he's wearing? Or is he just sincerely a fan of that bird? Is that bird a minor celebrity from a few decades ago? Who do you think that bird is? Well, I, I, did, I didn't even get that far. I thought when I saw it, oh, that's really going to piss Hub off because it's like that Arby's hat all over again. <laughs> God damn it. You don't put a fucking picture of a hat on a hat. You want me to wear a cowboy hat? Give me a cowboy hat. So we got a bird wearing a bird. That's true. But as I said, being a human man from Earth who does have some t-shirts with pictures of other human men from Earth, can't get too mad at that. Yeah, I don't think it's a famous bird. I just think, you know, he's a bird man and they ride birds to battle. So it's just part of the aesthetic. He's just a bird who likes birds. So he's got birds on his bird chest. Mm -hmm. What an asshole. Yeah. You know what? Ned's worse than an asshole. He's a cloaca. <laughs> what was your favorite panel? Oof, that's a tough one. The one where Hulk gets mad and busts out of the whatever it is, that like kind of cross they have him on, mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. It's Hulk, you know, at his, at his Hulky best. He looks mad and he's breaking the shit out of things and, and just busting out. Mm hmm. So that was a good one. That is a really good one. And honestly, there's a couple other on that page that I think are worth noting. The one right above it is the one where Shusha's looking shifty with all six of his eyeballs that are visible in that panel. And I appreciated that. And then there is also a panel in that that is of a giant image of Ned superimposed over his army marching through tunnel world and it's a very like triumph of will style image that just really does set him up as a fascist despot and i think it's really well done and you see that they are carrying a flag with a picture of a bird on it so you know that they are assholes yeah i'm sorry cloacas yeah (laughs) good good catch that's actually my favorite panel It's a very, very good one. That is up there. I think probably my real favorite is the first page, which we've talked about in detail already. Uh, It's just got so much going on in it with with the the font on the word wizard death and the centipede made of beefy arms. But there's really a lot to choose from. The art throughout the issue is very, very good. There was something very satisfying about Ned getting his comeuppance with the big thunk in that one panel that I appreciated. But for this category, I think my choice that I'm going to go with is on page seven, and it is the Lee Marvin with a beard (laughs) wing head and the Julie Christie wing head telling Namor, look, we get that we're outnumbered, but uh, 
they're gonna murder us all either way, so let's go down swinging. It's a very Lee Marvin sentiment to express, and a very Lee Marvin-looking winghead expressing that sentiment. Yep. Well, Corey, I have a question I must put to you. Yes. Behold or be gone. Hmm. Prehensile facial hair. Do you want it? <laughs> oh my god, so many questions. Does it look like little mini elephant trucks or does it look like actual regular hair? It looks like regular facial hair. This would be more like Medusa from the Inhumans, where it's however much hair you do choose to grow out of your face, you can control and make do shit. Can you shave it off and it grows back like regular face hair? Yes, but it probably hurts when you would do that. Mm. I mean, if you can control it, like if you can move it around like an arm, I think it's probably going to be less disposable than regular facial hair. So if I want it to be useful, it's got to be pretty long. So I basically have to have like a ZZ top beard forever. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep using it that way, yeah. What would I use it for? Gosh, I'm. you know what? I'm going to go with be gone because I have enough trouble with proprioception and, you know, knowing where my body is in space and navigating the world with what I got. So I don't need to add a prehensile beard to the mix. Yeah, gosh, it is very, very tempting for me. But I think how tempting it is, is one of the reasons I'm going to have to join you in giving it a be gone. First of all, I mean, I don't know for sure that it would work this way, but like I said, it seems like it would probably hurt to shave more, and I already hate shaving. Conversely, I think I would probably end up falling in with the competitive beard-growing crowd, and I've had some run-ins with them in the past that didn't go great. Oh, really? Yeah, they had one of their contest after parties at the bar I worked at, and a lot of those guys just rubbed me the wrong way. So, I mean... Those are two reasons, but the main one is if I could grow a mustache that I could grab things with, I don't think I would be able to keep myself from getting a Derringer and holding it with my mustache just because it would look so cool. And I shouldn't have a gun. No. Oh, you could also eat, you know, residue leaving snack foods like Cheetos. So, like, you could read a comic book and eat a whole bag of bugles of any flavor without getting fingerprints on the page. That's true. I would still get crumbs on the page, though. Well, that you can just shake. You can just shake that off. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. That is tempting. But I have pretty bad allergies, and I feel like I would feel that I was getting snot in my mustache. I think if you have the sensitivity to pick up things with it and to know when you've picked something up, you would have to have, like, receptors there. And I would feel how gross that hair probably is. It would require a lot of grooming. It really would. I bet that grooming would probably feel pretty nice, though. Hmm. Nah, it's still a, it's a be gone for me. I, I, don't want, I don't want more grooming. I don't want more stuff to not slam in doors or zip and zippers like there's just yeah oh gosh yeah could be bad that's a good point and yeah like i said honestly if i could i would probably hold a derringer with my mustache and uh that's not a good idea no safety first agreed so it's a pair of begones for the tempting proposition 
of prehensile facial hair. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? This one was uh, was pretty short and to the point, but I appreciated it because it was really uh, Namor at his name Namorisness, which, as you pointed out, we actually don't get to see a lot of in this issue. Namor is busting through the wall to, you know, kind of begin the, I guess, accidental rescue of Doctor Strange, and he says to the surprised guards, "Defend yourselves, lackeys! Prepare to face the wrath of Namor, the Avenging Son." I was like, oh, that's pretty great. Like, he gives him a heads up. <laughs> he says, get ready, I'm going to kick your butt. And he says it in a really Namory kind of way and calls them lackeys, which was, I thought, funny. That is pretty good. I think what would have maybe put that over the top for me is if he had added an imperious Rex, which he hasn't said in a little while. Yeah, I know. I miss that, too. I had a couple to choose from in this. Amongst my favorites is... The back and forth between the Charles Durning lackey and the four-armed Merlin lackey. The four-armed Merlin is talking about his theory of what's going to go down, and Charles Durning Lizard's like, I don't care, it's a sure bet we'll be pulling boring guard duty till Ogeon freezes over. Four-armed Merlin's like, no, no, we'll finally be allowed to hear the name. So is that good? Of course it's good, it'll be an honor, we'll live like kings. Some honor if everybody gets to do it. I don't want to live like a king. I just want to get off duty. Yep. I'm like, yeah, good for you, Charles Durning Lizard. You shouldn't work for Ned, but relatable. Yeah, I enjoyed that bit too. There was a bit, maybe you can help decipher this for me. I I think it's on page 15, and it's the last panel. It's like when, when those guards come to get relieved by the other guards. Mm-hmm. And one of the relief guys says, you're getting jumpy, Bedrog, which is, I guess, the guy's name. Better check in with the barracks, Leech. Me, for a few hours in the sack. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> there is at least one word missing on that, and I hadn't caught that before. So what does make sense is you're getting jumpy, Bulldog. Better check in with the barracks, Leech. So you should go see the doctor. And then, yeah, he says, me for a few hours in the sack. (laughs) And sack is bolded with an exclamation point. Mm Mm-hmm. It seems like maybe he is propositioning his fellow guard. (laughs) Doesn't it? But like in a weird, bad grammar way? Like maybe the word that got cropped off is join. Like, join me for a few hours in the sack. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I, I think it must be. I think probably he was trying to say, I'm going to go for a few hours in the sack. But no, that doesn't make sense, and I didn't catch it. All right. I didn't know if it was an attempt at more, you know... More shusha talk? Yeah, juice-style goofery, but okay. Yeah, it's just very confusing. Yeah, well, and you bring up my other favorite piece of dialogue, which is on page two, where Shush says... Nor ever I defeat will accept. You fall will, you titnidian. To me tell if the Hulk a convert is. Why chained you him, Aru? And that's not my favorite. My favorite is Ned's response to that, which is, Yag! Your pattern of speech is near incomprehensible, wizard. <laughs> but I understand your question well enough. Yeah. Much like I had a rare moment of empathy for Steve 
earlier that I talked about. At this point, I was just like, yeah, you're a real douche, but I hear you, Ned. Yeah, I cracked up when I read that because I had the same reaction. (laughs) Well, who did you have as the best defender and who did you have as the worst offender in this issue? So, yeah, I guess despite his usual and entertaining flying into an arrogant rage, I still had Namor because he, I felt, really kind of held things together. He, albeit accidentally, rescues Doctor Strange and leads one of the wing-headed guys to Ned and lets that guy knock Ned out, which was really cool of him. And um, I felt just, in general, did a good job. He took the bullet for the team. He dove into that yucky sewer water that he didn't want to go into Mm -hmm. and um, just showed some good leadership and, you know, for once didn't really put himself first and got things done despite that. So good job, Namor. Yeah, no, I agree. Namor did a very, very good job. I also liked the respect that he showed the creature that he freed. There's another of the uh, powdered wig monsters who's not wearing a powdered wig that is covered with these mystical, it looks like he has synapses on the outside, which is really horrific looking. Yeah. But he kind of bonds with that creature and is able to use him as a scout to help them take Ned down. I thought he did a very good job with that. But honestly, I also thought that Arowika did a pretty good job. I had thought that he was the guy who took Ned out at the end, which if he isn't, then maybe he didn't do the best job in this issue. But uh, Steve, I thought, actually did a very, very good job figuring out Shush's kind of unnecessary riddle and trapping the Hulk in an orb. I thought he did a very good job. I also thought that Shush did a very good job uh, sacrificing himself to save the universe, basically. Kind of putting one over on Ned on two separate occasions and knowing that he would be penalized but still doing what he felt was right despite the fact that it caused his death. And we saw that he's such a great guy that the Nayas die of grief as he dies. So... I don't know. I had a very difficult time choosing, but I believe in this scenario, Ty is going to go to the martyr. So uh, I got to give Shush the best defender in this issue. R.I.P. Shush. Nice. Yeah. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? Yeah. So this contradicts a little bit what you just said, but I was really mad at Steve for not rescuing Shush. I felt like he could have found a way to do that and um instead he gets killed and that just that bummed me out so for that and also for trapping that bird and you know i don't have a great love for birds but in that very uncomfortable split-legged stretch position for who knows how long which just seems cruel (laughs) i had steve as my worst i think that's kind of fair i choose to interpret him not making more of an attempt to rescue shush as him finally respecting another person's autonomy because Shush did tell him to go and he listened to him rather than thinking that he knew best. But I can see where you're coming from on that, certainly. Uh, I went with the Hulk because, I mean, I know he's being mind-controlled at this point, but even as a bad guy, he doesn't do a good job. He frees himself briefly and then is re-subjugated, gets stuck in an orb. I just don't think he did very well. 
He was set up to fail, certainly, put in a position of leadership that he is almost uniquely ill-suited for. He is a force of nature, but not really a leader of men, or even a leader of prehensile mustached weirdos. But he did a bad job. That is fair, for sure. He did do a bad job. What was your favorite sound effect this issue? Boy, this was a a rich issue for sound effects. I liked the scratch, which was, I think, on page 14. That was the noise of the orb being shattered by the goblet that uh, Ned threw at it in a state of rage. I really didn't like that he killed Shush, but uh, the noise that it made was a pretty evocative zock lasering Mm -hmm. kind of sound. But I think my favorite, and this one is a little bit grim also, is a scene that we I don't think we really got into yet, but one of the creatures that Ned had been torturing uh, so he could feed off of its pain was euthanized by Arawika. Mm-hmm. And the, the noise of that, of him being uh, stabbed with a spear, was shunk. Yeah. And I was just like, ugh, gross. But because of that, it was so evocative. That's That wins the prize. I think that's fair. I had... As a backup, not the time that Ned killed Shush, but the first time when he zapped him without killing him, which did incidentally in one of the following panels give Shush a black eye on one of his, like, myriad (laughs) of eyeballs, which I thought was a nice touch. But it makes the noise fizzwhack, which I thought was pretty fun. And then we get another one of the crusher tanks that we were introduced to in the last issue. And this one, instead of ba-doom-doom, makes the noise ba-ba-vam-doom! <laughs> Which is badass, man. It is. It is pretty badass. I, I gotta say I prefer the ba-doom-doom, but this one's pretty good. Double B, double V, double A, M, D, triple O, M. I mean, saying it out loud like that, it almost sounds like a Music Man song. (laughs) But uh, that's a pretty badass noise. Yeah, good stuff. Definitely spells trouble right here in Tunnel World. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? The Hulk's rules in this issue are simple and just once he recovers, will be based on the experiences that he's had. And it comes down to the bigger the bird, the greater the danger. Mm, Very true. Yep. To the point, no metaphor. Well, the other lesson he learns is also to the point and without metaphor. If someone commands you to put pants on in hot weather, they are not really your friend. (laughs) Hulk is ordered to wear long pants by Ned, does it? Doesn't care for it. And it's hot on Tunnel World. We've seen that. I think they got, like, at least a couple of sons. Mm-hmm. Man, if you're not used to wearing pants, just, you know, a pair of unintentional jorts, you are not going to be comfortable in that unstable molecules pair of slacks. Absolutely not. Military slacks, nonetheless. So, yeah, if somebody commands you to wear pants, they're not really your friend. Those are a good set of Hulk rules. I agree. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you, and that is, what Wong doings was Wong doing in the year of our Lord 1980 and the month of our Lord April? 
Yeah, Wong was searching the streets of Boston to find a missing Steve Strange in, oh. in early April. He had gone to Boston, Strange did, on you know some business and to see an old friend of his who, who was a journalist and didn't come back when he was supposed to come back. So Wong obviously, you know, grew concerned and decided to take it upon himself to go look for him. And early on, like within the first week of the month after traversing the city and making various inquiries, he finally found a uh, very bedraggled and very drunk Steve Strange at a sports bar in Boston. Turns out Steve had been on a bender since the first of the month trying to desperately shake off the feeling that he had made a mistake. Oh, no. And as a result, had gotten his buddy, Homer Siley, the journalist, canned from his job at uh, WNAC-TV, uh, a Boston station. Wong managed to, you know, get him a little bit sobered up and started to get the truth out of him. And so what had happened was Homer and, and Steve had, you know, hadn't seen each other for a while and started drinking and talking about how much they loved getting one over on people, especially with a the 1st of April, April Fool's coming up, that ah, maybe we should do something and uh, take advantage of uh, his buddy Homer's position of power as a, you know executive producer of the news at this Massachusetts television station. And so on the 1st of April, on the, uh, the 6 o'clock news, uh, a story came up that a well-known landmark in uh, Milton, Massachusetts, a smaller town outside of Boston, had a, called the Great Blue Hill, was actually a volcano that had become active and was erupting. And there was a news report presented, complete with a film of flowing lava and burning houses, edited in remarks from President Jimmy Carter and uh, Governor Edward J. King. And it was really well done to the degree that there was hundreds of panicked calls to the police station. Oh, my. And just really freaked people out and caused all this trouble and also wound up getting Homer Siley canned from his job for uh, demonstrating a failure to exercise good news judgment and for violating FCC rules about showing stock footage without identifying it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, Steve Strange felt bad. And uh, Wong got him sobered up and got him home. But hopefully there was a lesson learned in there somewhere. Well, I know the lesson that I learn is when I'm in the greater Boston area, I get all the news I need from the WLVI Kids Club. Mostly just Masters of the Universe reruns. Yeah, the news is that Voltron's on next. Okay. <laughs> well, that is uh, part of what was... what. Bleh. Well, that's what Wong and Steve were up to with the beginning of their month. But towards the end of their month they decided to celebrate 420 together. (laughs) So for April 20th, they decided to partake of some strong Jamaican incense and go see a movie. They decided to go see the recently opened Watcher in the Woods. You ever seen that movie? That doesn't ring a bell. Sounds scary, though. Yeah, it's a live-action Disney movie, but it was when Disney was trying to make, like, kind of creepy horror movies that were for older kids, young adults. Normally, I think Stephen Wong would have been okay with that, but uh, it ended up scaring the heck out of them, probably in part because of the strong Jamaican incense. There's a scene in the movie, too, where there's a missing girl who's been missing for a long time, and her name is Karen, and one of the kids 
sees an image in the mirror and they get a new puppy and they decide to name it Narek because they've seen that written down and that's Karen backwards. And between that and his adventures in Tunnel World, Steve became kind of obsessed with the idea of spelling things backwards. <laughs> so he started scanning through the newspapers and there was a story about Fidel Castro opening up Mariel Port and allowing Cuban citizens to leave for the United States for the first time. Within the next uh, few months, I think 125,000 Cubans ended up fleeing Cuba. But Steve didn't really read the whole article. He just focused on the name Castro and read it backwards and was like, Castro. Or sack. A sack of table scraps. Orts meaning table scraps, which is something he picked up from doing crossword puzzles. And he just kind of fixated on that. So he's like, so we need to get a bag of snacks together. <laughs> so they did. But then he's like, well, what are we going to do with this bag of snacks? Wong, Wong, what are we going to do? And Wong decided, eh, you know, I got some friends in Frisco. Maybe I can um, work this situation to my advantage. And he's like, oh, uh, you need to see the context. See, it's like, it's talking about Castro, but maybe it means the Castro district in San Francisco. Steve's like, oh, yes, that makes sense. Didn't make sense, but <laughs> Steve was pretty high right then. So they teleported themselves to San Francisco and started wandering around, eating their snacks. Wong was having a pretty good time. But eventually, they got pretty tired of that. And uh, after about five days or so of just kind of bumming around the city, he's like, Steve, maybe we could go see a baseball game. And Steve's like, oh, I, will, I won't see a uh, San Francisco Giants game. I'm still upset that they moved from New York. And uh, Wong's like, gee, Steve, I keep forgetting how old you are. Okay, well, let's go across the bay. We'll go to an A's game. So they went to an Oakland A's game, and they're eating their sacks of snacks that they brought with them and steve is munching on a marshmallow when who should show up but his old friend billy martin who as eagle-brained listeners will remember steve teleported to the future where he saw ghostbusters and got freaked out by the state Buff marshmallow man a while ago mm -hmm. uh you see steve eating a marshmallow and he just flips out charged into the stands that's why on April 25th, Billy Martin had to be held back by umpires from attacking a fan in the crowd. What people forget <laughs> is that fan was Steve, and it was because of the marshmallow fiasco, which had previously led to Billy Martin attacking a marshmallow salesman. Oh my gosh. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in April of 1980. Nice. Just eating an ort sack. <laughs> Getting attacked by Billy Martin. Fair enough. Well, thank you for joining us, Corey. I had a good time talking to you about this comic book. Likewise. And I had a good time talking to you listeners about it, too. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. I received a couple of packages there recently. I got a stack of various The Tick comic books from one of our Patreon donors, Ed Moore. Thanks so much, Ed. I can't wait to dive into those. And I got some Nth Man, the Ultimate Ninja that Lucas sent to us all the way from Australia. So 
I'm really looking forward to checking those out, and thank you so much, guys. As this is the future, we can also be contacted electronically via our email address. That's ttwasteland at gmail.com. We are also available in many aspects of the internet. We're on Twitter and Facebook, which is an evil corporation that you probably shouldn't have anything to do with. But if you haven't canceled your account with them yet, you can find us there. Lisa runs our Instagram page. Uh, owned by the same evil company, so if you choose not to visit us there, totally understand. And, gosh, a whole bunch of other places. Tumblr, which I don't know if they're evil or not, but you could probably make an educated guess on that. Yeah, we're, we're all up in many aspects of the internet, evil and otherwise. And if you can't find us there, there's one place that's definitely not evil where you can find us, and that's inside your heart. We'll be there waving at you, giving you a big thumbs up. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Nice heart you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. No, nope, sorry, nope, that's not nope, how that nope, ends. Nope. I'm not threatening. No, it's fine. We'll, we'll be good. <laughs> if you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland and making a donation. Donors get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show, which is the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with Lisa. And I also have been making a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. Lately, I've been doing a bunch of different PSA comic books. The one where Captain America tells you not to do drugs because maybe your drug dealer is an alien from another planet is particularly nice but uh yeah there's a whole bunch of those those were a lot of fun to go over and there is just a bunch of stuff up there we've been at it on the patreon page for a while so there's a whole lot of bonus podcast episodes that are available and video reviews and other material up there that is exclusive to our donors so if you kick us down a few bucks you get access to all of that but more importantly from my perspective at least it's a nice way for you to let us know that you like the work that we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to leave us a review in any of the places where reviews can be left, or, you know, try leaving them in places where you're not sure if they can be left. Or tell a friend, an enemy, a loved one, an evil bird who's trying to subjugate you. They probably won't like the show, but that's another bonus is you get to piss off an evil bird. So yeah, just, you know, spread the word about the show. One place you can leave a review is on Apple Podcasts. You could leave a review like this one. Drugs and politics in a comic book podcast? Five stars. <laughs> this started out as a comic book podcast, but sometimes they talk about politics. Also, one time they talked about marijuana, aka the devil lettuce, aka reefer, aka pot, aka weed, aka dope, aka grass, aka Mary Jane but not Spider-Man's girlfriend, aka Chronic, a.k.a. Broccoli, a.k.a. Ganja, a.k.a. Jolly Green, a.k.a. Dinky Doo, a.k.a. Good Butt, a.k.a. Bobo <laughs> Bush, a.k.a. Cannabis. Note, cannabis consumption is legal in the state of Washington. 
coincidentally also legal in the state of Oregon. Just saying for no particular reason. Anyway, Hub and Corey rock. Their guests rock. Their podcast is a lot of fun. This podcast is like a pie not made out of steel. Now please send me my carrot. That is nice. Well, Nihilus, your carrot is in the mail. And if it doesn't get there in time, that's because probably somebody is sabotaging the mail right now. So you know who to be angry at. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, really feel incredibly grateful to be able to continue doing this show. So until next time, you know what? Aroo! Oh, Pour yeah. one out for Shusha. Aroo. Okay, bye! Bye! And they